we turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll read that chapter again. We take as our text the last three verses of the chapter. We hear the inspired word of God in Exodus chapter 2. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took, took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me. And I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And then here follow the words of our text. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. 
And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Moses had left Egypt and made his way now toward the land of Midian. He had desired to be the leader of Israel. He thought that he would be the one who would be their savior, their deliverer. And now all those thoughts, all those plans had been shattered. They were left in bondage and they wanted to stay there. And Moses now has to flee for his life. Now we trust that Moses was not sorry for the choice that he had made by faith. By faith he made the decision to ally himself with the people of God rather than with Egypt and her wealth and with her pleasures. But Moses realized increasingly the consequences of the decision that he made and no doubt was sorrowful for his presumption By fleeing the land, he was in essence admitting his guilt in the murder of the Egyptian taskmaster. And now he comes to rest at a well in Midian, according to verse 15. He leaves the people of God in order to go into banishment. Alone. He knows no one. He knew nothing of the land. Weary, Moses sits down at the well. Now, if we put ourselves in Moses' shoes, it's not difficult to understand Moses' thoughts. His life was in shambles at that point. His God seemed to have forsaken him. He felt that he was now doing what God wanted him to do, and yet the people didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted to remain in Egypt. The purpose of his life seemingly is gone. And now he finds himself in banishment with no friends, no family, with the hatred of Pharaoh and the possibility of Pharaoh sending individuals to pursue him to take his life. Now, beloved, God has put us through similar difficult trying times. There are times when God takes from us so much, sometimes everything we have. Sometimes it's possession, sometimes it has to do with health and strength. There are times when God takes from us that which is precious. Times when God leaves us in situations where it seems like the purpose of living is gone. And we don't know which direction. We don't know where to go. We're brought, as Moses, to sit down by a well and contemplate the circumstance, the situation of our life. The invisible hand of Jehovah God was leading Moses all along. We confess that God works in mysterious ways. And we've experienced that at times in our life. The fact that God led us through extremely difficult ways, down a pathway we never would have chosen. And we look back and we see the discouragement that took hold of us, the fear, the troubles. And then God's hand. 
How could it be that Israel would want to stay in bondage? It seemed that the devil was winning. It seemed like the devil was having the upper hand. Pharaoh was destroying the people of God. And Moses is sitting on this well. It seems as though God doesn't care about me. It doesn't seem like he cares about his people. Where is God in all of these circumstances? Where is his hand? Where are his promises? Does he not care about his church? Does he not love me? Again, as Psalm 77 expresses the struggles of the psalmist, these struggles at time are ours. But God's way is in the sanctuary. God's way is in the holy place. And that Psalm 77 brings out in a beautiful way in verse 13. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Now what does that get at? In order to understand God's hand in our lives at times, we need to spend time with Him. We need to be in His Word. We need to understand the way in which He's dealt with His saints in the past and the way that He will deal with us going forward. Later, Israel and Moses would learn that God's way not only was mysterious, not only in the sanctuary, but it was also in the sea as God parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his host. And that too comes out in Psalm 77 and verse 19. Thy way is in the sea and thy path in the great waters and thy footsteps are not known. How could Moses or Israel have known God is going to bring about a deliverance by which he's going to lead us through the Red Sea on dry land to escape Egypt? But we read there in Psalm 77, Thou us thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now what is it that this history reveals? God is always with his church. God is always with his saints. God never leaves them. As our Heavenly Father, He's with us. And through all the afflictions, all the troubles, He has respect unto us. That means we are the apple of His eye. And He now is preserving and keeping us as His beloved. We look at that beautiful truth this evening. God's respect unto His people. Noting the promise, the preparation, and the presence and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. We read in verse 24. Now we know that God never forgot that covenant. This is not recorded in that manner as if God forgot it. Now, oh, he remembers it. God always remembered his covenant. The language is not intended to imply that God forgets. The idea is that God is faithful. And God at all times preserves that faithfulness to his promise. The language demonstrates that faithfulness of God. Though from every outward perspective, it seemed as though God had walked away from his people. That God had forgotten about his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Even though things seemed hopeless on every front, God is faithful. In Exodus 17, verse 7, one of the commentaries on this history we read, but when the time of promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. The time of promise drew nigh. 
That is, the reference there to God's providence by which God was directing all things that were taking place in such a way that he was preparing his people for that moment when deliverance would take place. It would take place, so to speak, in the fullness of time at the perfect occasion when God had planned it. God spoke of that wonder to Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 13, that after 400 years, God would return Israel back to the land of promise after having spent time in Egypt. God reiterated that point again to Jacob in Genesis 46, verse 4, promising God would make of Jacob a great nation and God would comfort and he would visit his people in the midst of their suffering and affliction in order to return them to the land of Canaan. That visitation, that deliverance is now about to take place. And it's being realized, even though, again, from every outward perspective, Moses can't see it. The people of Israel can't see it. But God is at work. Now, while God repeatedly to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob spoke of Canaan in connection with his covenant promise, we know that God was speaking of far more than an earthly land. There are those who get caught up on the earthly land of Canaan, on Israel, as though God's covenant promise was exclusively about Israel and about the land of Canaan. It's important to note that whenever God spoke of his promise, he always spoke of it as an everlasting promise, an everlasting covenant. Now that's not possible to speak of something everlasting with regard to earthly land because we also know that the Bible speaks of the fact that this world and everything in it is going to be burned with fire. That judgment will come and God's going to burn this world and then God's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth so that the land of Canaan, Israel, will not endure to all everlasting. Therefore, the reference cannot be simply and strictly to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. That was a part of the earthly fulfillment of the promise, but the promise extended beyond that. God was bringing Israel to understand the wonderful promise of the gospel, the promise of salvation in a heavenly country with a heavenly citizenship. The main problem with Israel was not Egypt. It was not Pharaoh. It was not hard work and bondage. The main problem of the Israelites was not that they were slaves. The main problem was they were sinners. And God was using their enslavement to point them and direct them to that reality. To see their need for a deliverer. And not just deliverance from the earthly bondage, but from the spiritual bondage of sin. And so God was bringing them through the promises that came to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now to Moses, the gospel. The gospel promise that spoke of the wonder of God's covenant faithfulness, the wonder of salvation, and the deliverance that God would bring by giving to them the glory of fellowship and communion with him in his house, in heavenly bliss. God would take his own into friendship. He would preserve and keep them and bring them into the perfection that he ordained. The wonder of God's covenant would be fulfilled not merely through an earthly victory, but through a spiritual and heavenly, through the Son 
of God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, God would bring about that deliverance from sin, and through Jesus Christ, God would take his children into the fullness of glory. God did not forsake his people when they were in Egypt. God is using Moses. He's using the history of Moses' life here as his grand plan to accomplish their deliverance. He will give them a life from above. He will give them a Savior who truly will deliver them from that which is their greatest need, sin and its bondage. And all because God loves his church and God loves his saints. God brings his people to see that. He brings his people to understand their sinfulness. He brings them to confess their anguish. He brings them to cry out in their deep need. And God worked that wonder in the life of Moses so that Moses saw his deep need. God works it in the life of Israel so that Israel understands that great need. But he also works it in your and my life so that we understand that great need, the need for a Savior. The biggest problem we face isn't the afflictions and the troubles and the difficulties. It's the reality of sin. And God directs us to see the misery of that sin and the deliverance that's in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Scripture throughout. And that's the message also that we see in this history. Now we read, God had respect unto them in verse 25. As I mentioned, that's a beautiful word. The idea here is that God knew them with an intimate knowledge of love. That knowledge that God has is a knowledge of everlasting love. A knowledge by which God chooses to himself a people from before the foundations of the world. Sets his love upon them and preserves and keeps them through the whole course of their lives unto the glory into which he brings them in heavenly bliss. God's faithfulness, God's love are on the foreground here. Among all the peoples of the earth, God set his love on Israel. And he pours out his goodness and his mercy toward them. And God's choice of Israel was not based on anything of Israel herself. Nothing that Israel had demonstrated. You recall God making that explicitly clear in Deuteronomy 7. We read in verses 6 to 8. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore... That the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Again, that wonderful truth is not only behind the narrative here, that's behind your and my life stories. Why did God choose me? Why did God set his love upon me? Not because of anything of myself. Not because of any good I had performed. Not because I was better than anyone else. But because he loved me. He set his love upon me. And he would preserve and keep me. 
Here are the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. They're not interested seemingly in deliverance. They're content to stay in that bondage. They're content to continue living in the reality of sin. Though they find themselves in a difficult situation, they don't even understand the horror of it. And again, beloved, that's you and me. Though we find ourselves sinners, and though we're in a horrible situation of our sin, we don't even understand the horror of that sin as we ought. We don't cry out to God as we should for repentance and sorrow and forgiveness. And then they reject the one who tries to deliver them. And so it is with us at times. We don't even see God's hand in our lives. We don't even confess the wonder of His goodness and His mercy. We're given to our own sin, our own unfaithfulness. But God, beloved, but God, God will not forsake His own. He looked upon the children of Israel and He has respect. He remembers His covenant. He will not leave His chosen, precious vessels isolated from the communion of the saints. And God here is watching over Moses. God leads Moses to Midian. That's striking. Midian is comprised of the descendants of Abraham. So that God is bringing Moses into fellowship and communion with his saints. Moses cannot be alone. Moses cannot stand alone in the midst of the wicked world. He needs companionship. He needs fellowship. And so God sovereignly ordains that Moses dwell in the land of Midian. Abraham, you recall, after Sarah died, married a woman named Keturah. God gave Abraham and Keturah a number of children. Numbered among them was a man named Midian, who became then the father of the Midianites. So the Midianites are descendants of Abraham through Keturah. Genesis 25 verse 2 expresses that. This remnant now that Moses is directed to that comprises of Reuel or Jethro, the name is the same, was a priest of Midian. He was a man whose name meant friend of God. And he serves now in the capacity of priest to the faithful. It was to this man's home that God now sovereignly directs Moses in his love and his care. God, by his almighty hand of providence, caring for his troubled son, Moses, and directing and providing a godly wife through Zipporah and providing him with children. What a wonderful testimony of God's goodness and of God's grace and the Lord's respect unto his own. But we note here the preparation, secondly. God needed to prepare Moses. He needed to prepare the people of Israel. And there was necessary preparation for Pharaoh and for Egypt. First of all, Moses. Moses had thought that he was the gift of God to Israel who would accomplish the deliverance of God's people. Now, while Moses was cracked in part, possibly had been taught that, as we noted, from early on, from his mother in his household, 
It was important for Moses to understand God was the one who was delivering. God was the one in control. Moses was beginning to think of himself more carnally than he ought to have. He was thinking of himself with more pride than he should have. He was thinking that he could accomplish deliverance of Israel by his own arm of flesh. He was, after all, educated, he was trained, he was prepared, and now he would do it. Moses had to learn God would deliver his people. This was not Moses' work, this was God's work. Now, God would make use of Moses, but it was God's work. And Moses was merely a tool. Moses was thinking, incorrectly, this is my work. I have been now prepared for such a time and now I have to be the one who's going to bring about this deliverance. He thought perhaps God would assist him in the work that he would take up. God says, no Moses, this is my work and I will accomplish it in my time making use of you as a tool in my hand. And so now Moses is being prepared. From 40 years until 80. Exodus 7 verse 7 makes clear there was a 40 year time period here. Moses now learns the lesson that God is in control. That God will preserve his church by his faithfulness and by his power. And God humbles Moses. Through his trials, God would bring forth fruit. God never unnecessarily brings trials and afflictions to his children. God always has a purpose. And now Moses learns, and Moses is prepared. And what do we read about Moses later? The fruit of this preparation is that Moses is the meekest man that ever lived apart from Christ. What a change in 40 years. Gone was the refined man who sat in the court of Pharaoh, the man who was capable and able and who came now prepared to bring about deliverance. In its place is a common man, one whose clothes now are the clothes of a shepherd, dirty, torn from labor in the wilderness, one whose words are simple, few, whose self-confidence is given away now to timidity, whose ambition and enthusiasm of youth is now revealed in a quietness and a patience, From all outward appearances, it would seem that his schooling and his royal upbringing were a complete loss. But what was it that was happening? Moses lost himself. He did not lose his faith. That would be impossible. No man can lose his faith. But he now comes to realize how insignificant he is in the plan of God. He comes to understand who he is as he labors now on the backside of the desert in God's good providence. And Moses learns himself to be a sinner. He learns himself to be one who is completely dependent and reliant upon God. Now, beloved, you and I know the same experience. There are times when we think that we can control things in our lives. We think we have everything under control. We believe that we can oversee this part of our lives, that we have the strength to do it. God teaches us quickly. You can't. God humbles us, sometimes extremely painfully. And we bring great grief and great sorrow to our families, our spouses, our children. 
God teaches us quickly, you need to look up. You can't stand in your own strength. Our health decreases. Our savings are depleted. God takes away the idols in which we were putting our trust and he humbles us to our knees. And he brings us to see that the work that he is performing is his work in our lives. And we need to lean on him. And he's doing it in such a way that he gets all the glory and he receives all the praise. And we're brought to understand then how small we are. How insignificant we are in the grand, glorious work that God is pleased to take up. And we ourselves, with Moses, acknowledge that we don't even see ourselves qualified. We don't understand how we even could be used by God. But yet it's God's work, and God is pleased to make use of us as his servants, as tools in his hand. God prepares his people, as he did Moses, so that he gets all the glory, so that all the praise is directed to him. Moses must decrease so that God can increase. I must decrease in order that Christ increase in my life. But secondarily, God had to prepare Israel. And the children of Israel, we read in verse 23, sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of their bondage. The people of God now have a new king, a new pharaoh. And this leads their cries now to become all the more fervent. We're not given an explanation as to why. Why is it that now they're becoming more fervent, more sincere in their knowledge of their sin, their unworthiness? But God is at work, and God gives their prayers wings, and their prayers fly up to God. Previous to this, they were groaning, but their groans weren't being converted into prayers. Now, they're looking to God. They're acknowledging the difficulty of their circumstance and their need for a deliverer. Jehovah, deliver us. The church on earth finds herself similarly in the midst of persecution, oppression, struggles. The wicked rise up against the church. It seems as though the wicked are prevailing. The devil divides, he conquers. The devil accomplishes schism and great victories on his behalf and for the sake of his kingdom. And in the midst of the sorrows and the struggles of the church, it seems as though there's no deliverer. And so the church cries out. She cries out to her God. And Jehovah hears his beloved church. He hears his saints who are the apple of his eye. And he remembers his covenant, which he has established from eternity. And he shows his love to them. And he brings about their deliverance. He gives them to know the wonder of Christ. And he delivers them in a way that's far higher and more glorious than anything they can imagine. We look at this history. Israel could never have imagined the way in which God would bring them out of Egypt. The church cannot imagine the means that Jehovah God will employ over against the wicked to bring about their destruction and the salvation of his church. But God will raise up a deliverer who will not fail. Moses was a mere man. Moses would fail. He would disobey God. He was a sinner. He would be equipped and used by God 
but he would fall. And God directs his church to the Messiah. Jesus Christ who will not fail. Jesus Christ who will deliver his church. And now God prepares us to look to him and to look for his deliverance. And so the church cries out, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. As we cry out for the coming of our Lord and Savior on the clouds of heaven to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. God is preparing his church on earth for the final return of his son and the glory that awaits. And he hears our prayers and he has respect unto them. But finally, God is preparing Egypt and Pharaoh for judgment. The cup of iniquity here is being filled. The gods of Egypt, they are no gods. And they need to be exposed as idols. And God's judgment will come upon the wicked in his time. No one can oppose and persecute the church without God's wrath being revealed against them. And they having to give an account of their actions. Touching God's people is to touch God, as we've sung. The destruction of Egypt and Pharaoh is a picture of God's wrath on the world and his justice being revealed regarding those who oppose and persecute his saints. And that judgment continues in our day. It seems as though the devil has the upper hand. It seems as though the wicked rise up. It seems as though they're unopposed. But Jehovah is a just and righteous God. And he will bring about the destruction of the wicked in his time. At the time of Christ's return, the trumpet will sound. And God will bring about the fullness of the deliverance of which all of this history was but a picture. His church, delivered once and for all from sin, brought into the fullness of covenant fellowship, the devil and all the wicked cast into everlasting destruction. And God accomplishing the wonder by which he will be all in all. This is the way of God. The church is redeemed through judgment. Now God's presence is here with his people. Again, God had respect unto them. God hears their cries, and God comes to his people. That's a beautiful truth. The way of God is to come to his own. He does that in a marvelous way, a way that, again, we could never understand or comprehend fully. He comes to dwell in our hearts by his Spirit, so that though we find ourselves on a well, our life in shambles, alone. We're not alone. He's with us. He's present in His love and His mercy by His Spirit in our time of need. And He comforts us in order that He might uphold us and preserve us and take us into the fullness of the joy that awaits. Here we see the love of God for His children and for His church. The church is intoxicated with the world. She's in the midst of the world. She's rejecting God's deliverance even. She's living in the world as those who are of the world. God's children are not confessing their sin. They're not looking to Him like they should. They're not spending themselves in worship as they ought. 
But rather than allowing them to perish in unbelief, God in his mercy comes to his own. And he works the wonder of faith in their hearts. And he preserves and he keeps them as his own. Hebrews 11, another commentary on this passage, expresses the faith that was central in Moses' life by faith. God worked faith in the heart of Moses so that Moses was able to know the love of God by which God had taken him and made him his own son. Now Moses had been a son of Pharaoh's daughter with all the privileges, with all the rights that that involved. And now that was gone. But God gives Moses to know something far more precious, something greater than anything earthly. He has all the rights and privileges of a child of God. The Almighty God looks upon him in love, works faith in his heart, and gives him to know, God is my Father. Though I'm rejected now from Pharaoh, I'm cast out from his courts. Though the Israelites have cast me off, I have one who will preserve and keep me, one who loves me like no other father has ever loved me, my heavenly Father. And this is more precious than anything Pharaoh can offer. This is more precious than anything the world can offer. Beloved, to know and to believe, I am a child of the living God. I am a son, a daughter of the King of Kings. Nothing in the whole world can compare to the joy of that confession. Although we don't read of Moses' confession of sin, we don't read of his prayers to God, we're confident such was taking place during this difficult, lonely time of Moses. Moses had made a mess of his life He went ahead of God. He leaned on his own strength. He was paying now the prices of the consequences. He had to flee for his life. God brought Moses low so that God could lift Moses in a manner so glorious that Moses could never have imagined. And beloved, so it is in our experience. God brings us low in order that he might take us and lift us to joys and pleasures that we can't comprehend. So that Moses would never forget God's hand in his life. And Moses' names that he gives to his sons reflects that confession. Confessing himself to be not only a stranger in a strange land, Gershom, but also with his next son, that God remembered and that God was faithful Faith upheld Moses. And beloved, so it is in our lives. We go forward by faith. And finding ourselves in distress, finding ourselves dealing with the consequences of our own sins, God brings us to see, I have respect unto you. I love you. You are my child. And I am preserving and keeping you. And I will bring you to heights you cannot even imagine. Now God works the faith by which the remnant in Israel embraced this wonder. The children of Israel sighed and God heard their cry. 
God looked upon them in love. And again, what a beautiful truth, beloved. Though I sin, though I continually sin, though I cry out to God for mercy, though I'm so unfaithful, He is faithful. He continues to work repentance. He continues to give me the assurance of forgiveness. And nothing, absolutely nothing can separate me from the wonder of His love. God looks at you and at me. He looks at His church with a face of love. And God says, I love you so much that I gave my son as a substitute, as a sacrifice for you and in your place. I loved you with such a great love that I gave of myself and I will preserve you and I will keep you now to all eternity. That, beloved, is love. And God gives Moses to see his presence like Moses never saw it before. He will see it in the burning bush. And we'll note that, Lord willing, next time. He will see it in the miracles that God will be pleased even to work through him. He will see the finger of the divine at work. And God is showing Moses a wonder of wonders. I love you. And I will preserve you. And I will keep you by the power of the Christ who lives and dwells in you by his spirit. You're weak. You're a sinner. You're nothing of yourself. But you're an object of God's love. And as an object of God's love, having Christ dwelling within you, therein is your value and worth. I've not forgotten my covenant. I'm taking you home in order to dwell with me to all eternity. Beloved, we look at our lives. We look back on our lives as a painting, as a canvas. And sometimes we despair. It seems like the colors are all mixed up. Everything is a mess. We can't even make sense of it. But though the portrait of our life sometimes seems so dismal, the colors don't seem to stand out. We can't make sense of it. God says, look to me. The most important color in your portrait is red. It's the blood of my son that was shed for you. And because of that blood, there's a rainbow of brilliant colors testifying to my faithfulness to my covenant. I love you and I will preserve and keep you and I will prepare you for the glory that awaits. Bringing you into my mansion where we will dwell forever in the bliss and glory of that covenant love. Beloved, walk by faith. We see God's hand in all things. We know the blessed assurance of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And sitting on the well, we call to remembrance Jehovah, His faithfulness and His respect unto His church. What a love. What a Savior. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, uphold us. Grant unto us grace. Forgive us. Strengthen us that we might truly respond in gratitude and thankfulness as we ought confessing the wonder to which nothing can compare. I am loved of God, a child of the King who has been given a Savior and who knows the wonder of forgiveness and life in Him. Amen.